Now the Spirit expressly says that in the later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Jesus Christ, being trained in the words of faith and the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, Train yourself for godliness, for while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, for to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. All right, I had a conversation with Wesley, his last Little League football game a few weeks ago, and we were talking about the goal of an at-bat. What's the goal of an at-bat? Now, there's two ways to go about this. The goal of getting up and being at the plate, is it A, to not strike out, or is it B, to get a hit? Is it to not strike out or is it to get a hit? The goal of an at-bat, I told Wesley, is to get a hit. It's not to go up there and hope you don't strike out. The goal of an at-bat is to aim your mind at hitting the ball. What's the point of playing a game? To not lose or to win. It's to win. So. When you compete and when you're in a competition, what your attention is aimed at, what your goal is, it is to hit the ball. It's to make the shot. I, Adam came, came and played basketball with us the other day. He's an excellent shooter. I'm sure he doesn't go up there shooting the ball, hoping he doesn't miss. No, what you do is you aim for the, you put your attention on the thing you're aiming for. I'm going to hit the ball, I'm going to win the game, I'm going to make the shot. So to succeed, in order to succeed, you, you don't succeed necessarily by trying to avoid failure. You succeed by aiming for victory. That's in competition. I think that's a fundamental reality in competition. But in this passage, so I put that before you because something similar is happening in this passage. Um, in this passage, Paul is warning Timothy of dangerous teachings, which says that spiritual growth is attained by avoiding the material world. And that true spirituality is achieved through denying the physical body and even inflicting suffering on the physical body. 
But Paul is going to remind Timothy that everything created by God is good, and things like food and marriage are to be received with thanksgiving if God has given it to you. Therefore, true godliness, as I see it in this passage, Paul is saying, is not attained by placing your attention on the physical world and then withdrawing from it. It's by placing your attention on God and striving for him. And there is a difference in that. Holiness and godliness sometimes are turnoffs to even Christians because it sounds stuffy, it sounds like I just want to withdraw from the world and not do anything. And please hear me. There are things which you should not do. There are things that do dishonor God. There are sins that we ought not to partake of that will ruin our soul, grieve the Holy Spirit, dishonor the Lord. So there are things that you must not do. But when it comes right down to it, I believe that true godliness is not primarily about what we avoid. It's about what we strive for, what is the center of our affection, what we place our mind on, what we pursue. Therein is the center of godliness. So what I'd like to do today is treat this passage in two movements. Number one, false spirituality. Second, true godliness. False spirituality versus true godliness. Paul says the spirit, first of all, false spirituality, Paul says, is going to arise from teachers, deceitful teachers, who are going to lead many to depart from the faith. I hope to come to you... Uh, uh, now, the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teaching of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. That is strong language. He didn't say, now some are going to depart from the faith. He says, the Spirit expressly says that some will depart from the faith. We have evidence that this is not just something that Paul was given as a one-off revelation, but something that the Spirit was impressing upon Paul's heart for a matter of years, especially in the church at Ephesus. In Acts chapter 20, when Paul calls the Ephesian elders and he prays over them and he exhorts them to shepherd the flock, he says something very interesting. In Acts chapter 20, verse 29 31 through 31, he says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night and day to admonish everyone with tears. This exhortation was given to the church where Timothy is now stationed. 
the church at Ephesus. So Paul has had for some years an awareness through the Holy Spirit that there would be false teachers leading many astray from the faith. When Paul says the later times, now the Spirit expressly says, so not only will people be drawn away from the faith, but Paul says in the later times, in the latter times, some will depart from the faith. I am of the opinion that the the latter times are not to be understood as the last days, such as the last couple of years or the last week of the world's existence. Rather, I believe that the later times, the latter days, really refer to the Christian era that's been inaugurated with Christ's first coming and will be consummated with Christ's second coming. The reason I think that's what the latter days are is because in Hebrews 1.1, that's how the author of Hebrews defines later days. He says, God who at many times and at many ways spoke unto the fathers by the prophets has in these last days spoken unto us by a son. In Acts 2, verse 17, Peter quotes Joel, a prophecy from Joel, where Joel says, in the last days, in the last days, this is a quote from Joel 3, 1, in Acts 2, 17, Joel says, in the last days I will pour my spirit out. That is exactly what happened at Pentecost. And Peter takes that passage from Joel under the superintendence of the Holy Spirit and applies it to the outpouring of the Spirit in the book of Acts. So the last days is the inauguration, refers to that new covenant era, the Christian era. And so the last days have been going on for 2,000 years. And that is paralleled with the days before, which were in the old covenant times, where God would speak through prophets, where men did not have the Holy Spirit, where God chose just Israel. These are the last days. We has poured his spirit out on those who believe him. And those men and women are praying for Christ's second return to consummate the last days. Paul says that these men are not just men teaching false things, but they are in league with deceitful spirits and demons. So, I think we need to understand when we come to false teachings, whatever they may be, what is often behind them is a spirit of deception. And when I say spirit of deception, perhaps even a personal agent of deception. Because we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against rulers, against spiritual forces of evil, right? So what is behind, what is behind what we see is very important as Christians. The book of Revelation, that's really what the book of Revelation is about. It's an unveiling of what is behind world powers. They are monsters driven by demonic force. So, that's what's going to happen. There's the problem. False teachers are going to arise, leading many astray through false teaching, which behind those false teachings are 
spirits who defy God and want to draw away men and women from true worship of him. How is this going to happen? This in verse 3 seems so light and so insignificant and harmless. What are these false teachers teaching? It must be an awful just obviously satanic thing. I mean, they must be tearing women and children apart and and sacrificing them. No, what they were doing is in verse 3 they forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received from thanksgiving with thanksgiving. What's going on here? It, now this is where it's helpful to know the context, the historical context of the scripture. There was a heresy developing in the first century which came into full bloom in the second century called Gnosticism. And Gnosticism was the teaching that what you really need is to, well, let me start from the beginning. Gnosticism believed that the physical world was evil. So there's the spiritual realm and there's the physical realm. So in order to be truly spiritual, what you need to do is to avoid and withdraw from the physical realm. So there was a yin and yang going on with Gnosticism. They believed the spiritual world was evil, and then therefore spirituality is about withdrawing from the material world and any pleasure in it. This led to a practice known as asceticism. And asceticism was extreme abstinence from physical things. Um, food, sexual intercourse, that's why they forbid marriage, um, sleep, meets, anything that would give you pleasure is by definition on Gnosticism evil because it, it pleases the physical part of you rather than the spiritual part of you. And so the Gnostics, or these proto-Gnostics, would say that the way to grow spiritually is you, you need to detach from the from the physical world. It almost reminds me of Buddhism today. Um, you need to detach from the material world and any pleasure in it, and you need to avoid. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Seems to have been a motto. And Paul offers this theological correction to that teaching, which he believes is very, very dangerous. I'll tell you why in a minute. But he offers this corrective in verse 4. He says, everything created by God is good. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. So we should approach the material world, the, the Apostle Paul is telling us, including food and marriage as good gifts to be received with thanksgiving. We are not to eschew them or believe they are evil. We are to thank God for the good gifts he's given us. When I am hunting 
They, it seems like the sun rises more beautifully when you're in a tree stand. It is beautiful. And I just thank God for the ability to be out there in nature. When I'm playing basketball sometimes, I am just amazed that we can run and jump. It, it's, it's such a blessing, especially there was one time I, I got injured. I pulled my back out. And I remember I couldn't play for a few weeks, but afterwards it was like I felt like freedom and just being able to use my body. And I was thanking God for that. And I, I truly believe that there are good gifts of play and food that tastes good and marriage where you have a partner to go through life with. It, these are blessings from the Lord and instituted by God. God created the food, did he not? And God Bless the institution of marriage in Genesis, did he not? So therefore, these things are created by God to be received with thanksgiving. Now, some of you who are Bible readers, and I hope you are all our Bible readers, may say, say to yourself, doesn't Paul think that, that singleness is actually better in the sense that it frees you up to serve the Lord uh, more freely? Yes, he does. In 1 Corinthians, Apostle Paul does say, does suggest singleness to be considered. But he, he talks about this as a matter of practicality, not as a matter of spirituality, not as a matter of this is the path to holiness, avoiding marriage. Um, he never says marriage is bad, the Apostle Paul. In fact, he elevates marriage, and he says it's a picture of Christ and the church. Highly elevates marriage. What he does say as a matter of practicality, he says, if you are single, you are free to serve the Lord in a way that a married man or woman is not. And I think that's just transparent and obvious. You could go to the mission field and die and not leave children and a wife there. And some of you might say, well, isn't fasting an ascetic discipline? Yes, it is. But we don't suggest you avoid food because, it evil, because it's evil. It's a good thing that God gave to you. And so what fasting is, it is not eating for a time. It's abstaining from a good thing for a time to focus on prayer. I'm fasting to be filled with the Lord. Emptying my body of food to be filled with the fire of the Lord. So, singleness can be a gift. And fasting is a discipline. But it's not a matter of avoiding them because they're evil. And that's very important to understand. It's a matter of abstaining from these good gifts that God has given men to serve the Lord more fully. That's the idea behind singleness and fasting. So in church history we have an example of how this Gnostic and ascetic teaching kind of took over uh, the church in very, very unhelpful ways. In the second century what became um, fashionable was for m desert monks or monks to go out in the desert and do spirituality out there. And 
and they started to develop a strange system of spirituality where in order to be truly spiritual you would go live in a cave and eat um, and just eat no meats at all and you would and you would have no association with other people for years and you would never speak and I think that is extremely unhelpful there's one story about a desert monk who lived on top of a 30-foot pillar for half his life I think 30 or 40 years and his disciples would bring bread to him every once in a while and this was thought as the height of spirituality what really another monk was known for not sleeping he would stand and lean on sharp corners of the walls so that he would not be able to enjoy sleep I believe this is transparently a self-centered kind of spirituality instead of seeking the kingdom of God it avoids creation instead of pursuing Christ likeness it escapes society I mean love is patient and kind right and so in order to love you need someone to be patient with and kind to if you withdraw like a hermit and never have saints of the world to love that to me is not that is not Christ likeness that is not holiness instead of stewarding the gospel this is like the man who hid his might in the sand and didn't do anything to advance the kingdom in himself or in the world this was this this idea this strange monkish spirituality was really beginning to to take form when Paul was writing it wasn't in full bloom yet but it really began to take form in the churches if you have your Bible I encourage you to turn to Colossians chapter 2 verse 20 and 23 because the Apostle Paul is going to address the same issue in Colossians so not only was this a problem in Ephesus, it was evidently a problem, problem in Colossae. In Colossae, what they were doing was they were taking their focus off of Christ and devoting themselves to avoiding the physical world. They weren't focused on hitting the ball in our sports analogy. They were fo focused on not striking out. They were avoiding rather than pursuing. So Paul says, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings these indeed have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism 
and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So self-denial is a Christian virtue, but what you deny is your ambitions and you trade them for Christ's. What you deny is your own plans, your own ambitions, your own sin. And now you put Christ in the first place. I'm set, I set aside my ultimate goals for the kingdom of God. That's self-denial. That's taking up your cross. It's not setting aside food forever or marriage forever. It's setting aside your ultimate goals of autonomy and putting Christ in first place. So then Paul says, he continues in one of what is might be my favorite paragraph in scripture. He says, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. You see what, you, you see what he's saying here. Don't set your mind on things of the earth and avoid them. Set your mind on things above and pursue them. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will appear with him in glory. That is true spirituality. That is true godliness. The attention of the Christian life is not primarily, brothers and sisters, in avoiding, but primarily on seeking, seeking Christ and his kingdom. So understand that Satan is not against spirituality. He will keep you very religious and very spiritual as long as that spirituality focuses not on Christ, not on God, but on the things of the world, on something else. He will, he will, as long as you are not, you're not aiming at Christ, if I'm a defender and I'm playing basketball and I know that this man, every time he shoots, he's not aiming for the rim. I'm not going to play defense, <laughs> right? If I was a pitcher, and I knew the man would never swing the bat, I would just throw strikes every time. So, likewise, Satan is not against you aiming at being spiritual or in the sense that you are avoiding the world and, and uh, your attention is on the stuff of earth. What he is against is your attention being on Christ and you pursuing him. This is why I think for me it was so important to to realize this principle in my life. And when I say realize, I mean reckon this principle in my life. About two or three years ago, 
when culture was getting really polemical and really polarized. I remember seething with anger one time, about 2019 or 2020, because they were trying to defund the police and and uh, what else was there? Just very, very foolish things. What happened to my spirit during those days, during that two-week period, is I was getting very wrapped up in how bad culture is and how many in the church are capitulating and going astray. That really got me worked up. And so what, would, what was happening in my soul was I was angry at people for those two weeks. I was frustrated at people. And um, I was angry at the world. I was angry at the church. And I don't think Satan was displeased at all. But when I realized the principle I'm speaking and Paul is talking about today, it, it really gave me a change of perspective because now I have developed, I'm by God's grace developing a heart where I rejoice in the Lord. Where there are so awful things happening in culture, but my aim is not how bad the culture is or how sinful the church may be and I do get frustrated at that at times but my ultimate aim is to pursue God and godliness for his sake and that is that has made all the difference in my life because what I'm aiming at what my affections are aiming at is the kingdom of God rather than the kingdom of the world and seeing how bad it is I'm aiming for the kingdom of God and how good he is. The kingdom of God, Jesus said, is like a man who found buried treasure hidden in a field. And in his joy, he went and sold all that he had to buy that field. Because now the treasure belongs to him. <clears throat> that is what I'm talking about. It's you leave off the world because of the greater value of the kingdom of God. You see what I'm saying? So what is true godliness? I just told you, but what is true godliness then? So that's, that's a false spirituality, a spirituality that aims at anything but God is just fine with Satan. And we have that in the prosperity gospel. Because it doesn't aim at God. It aims at getting things from God. Right? Satan's fine with that. I think. So what is true godliness? Well, Paul says in verse 7, Have nothing to do with irreverent and silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Go godliness is best understood by understanding what sinfulness is. Sin, hamartia in the Greek, is to miss the mark. 
It is to deviate from God's standards and his nature. So, sinfulness, to be sinful, is to lack conformity with God. And the Westminster Confession of Faith rightly defines sin as any want of conformity to God or his law. Therefore, what we aim for in godliness is the opposite. Complete conformity to God and his law. With my mind, I want to conform my mind to his truth. I want to conform my will and my affections to his kingdom, my character to his son, my hands and feet to his mission, complete conformity with God. That's the goal. Me and uh, Khalil like a song called Holiness is what I long for. And the song says, um, Take my heart and conform it. Take my mind and transform it to yours, to yours, O Lord. I, I love that lyric. So I want to take my mind, asking God to take my mind, my heart, my hands, and conform them to who he is and his will. That's godliness. That's godliness, and that's what we're after. And that's why Paul says, train yourself. For godliness. Now it is very interesting. Understand that godliness doesn't happen by accident. Person doesn't go through life never intending to be godly, and ten years later says, What? Look at that, I'm I'm more godly than I was. I never tried anything. That doesn't happen. They may think they are, but I don't think it happens that way. It does not happen that way. Paul says, train yourself for godliness. Exercise thyself unto godliness, the King James Version says. Um, train is a very interesting word. It's, it's gymnazo, gymnazo, from where we get our English word gymnasium. So it refers to an athlete in physical training. So Paul is taking that mental picture and he's offering it to you to understand how to train for godliness. So Paul is telling Timothy to be in the spiritual gymnasium as you train for godliness. Just like an athlete commits himself to a life which contributes to excellence in his sport, so Timothy contribute or Commit yourself to a life, a pattern of life, which contributes to godliness. So, I've given this example before, but I think it's a good one. If I wanted to bench press, bench press 275 pounds, I would get there and go to the gym, try to do that tomorrow, and not be able to do it now. What do I need to do in order to achieve that? See, when I say not able, I'm not free to do it. I do not have the freedom to bench press 275 pounds. So what do I need to do to be free? I need to develop 
a pattern of life, a routine, and a discipline where I get on a bench press routine, a plan. Where every two, maybe three days a week, I'm bench pressing. Um, I go through a pattern, maybe 145, then you know, a set of 175 and a set of 200, and then I up those weights every every next workout. And so what that's going to do is going to build muscle, and then eventually, as time goes on, maybe in a year or so, I can bench press 275 pounds. Now I'm free to bench press 275 pounds when I was not free before to do that. So discipline and routine is freedom. I know I've told you this one before too, but Paul Washer gives the example of a young man listening to a concert violinist. And the concert violinist played the violin with such excellence and beauty. And the violin just seemed to moan and weep as he played. And the young violinist came up to him afterwards and said, I would give my life to play like that. And the concert violinist said, young man, I have given my life to play like this. Because he's disciplined himself to practice and practice, now he is free to play in a way that he would not have been free before if he had not disciplined himself. That, understand, is what, how one trains oneself for godliness. It is to devote yourself to godly habits which shape the mind and the soul. What might those be? What might those habits be? Why, I believe, a daily pattern of Bible reading is the key discipline for Christians. The key discipline for Christians. I would encourage you, if you do not have a daily plan, to get one. There are many plans online. You could look at the Discipleship Journal reading plan online. Get through the Bible in a year. Or maybe, maybe you say the Bible in a year is a lot because that requires five chapters a day. All right. I'll meet, you, I'll meet you in the middle. Do two chapters a day. You can do two chapters a day. Do And just read through books of the Bible. Don't just close your eyes and pick a spot. Read through books of the Bible. Prayer. Develop a set time for prayer. Maybe you wake up in the morning, you're reading your Bible, you're praying. Develop a set time for prayer. Fasting. It is good to fast every once in a while. Maybe once a week, maybe once a month, you're fasting a meal or two. Not for some pious, self-congratulatory goal, but because you want to fast to be filled. Joining a local church, family discipleship, Stewarding who and what God has entrusted to you. Speak evangelism. These are actually disciplines that shape you and make you useful to the Lord. So, all of this is to say that God-centered piety aims at God. 
That's what godliness aims at. It aims at God. It does not look at the world necessarily. It's not, it's not attention. Full attention is on the world and what not to do. It's on God and pursuing him. Godliness is attained through the intentional cultivation of godlikeness through the means of grace. And Paul says this is the end to which we toil and strive. Godliness, which holds promise in this life. That means you can actually attain to a point of spiritual maturity and holiness. Not just this life, but the life to come. You're building upon the kingdom with precious jewels. To this end we toil and strive. Now, I just want to show you that what I've been saying so far is the essence of spiritual maturity. It is the essence of spiritual maturity. In Philippians 3, because I want to prove what I just said to you, Paul defines his life as a forward-leaning, proactive, intentional, deliberate pursuit of the things of God. Philippians 3.12 He talks about attaining to the resurrection of the dead. And he says, Not that I already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Isn't that interesting? So I reach for that for which Christ took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but the one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Do you see that? Upward pursuit. Forgetting what lies behind. An upward pursuit of the things of God. In verse 15, Paul says, Let those of us who are mature think this way. Let those of us who are mature think this way. So to be complete and mature is to think about the Christian life as pursuing God. A.W. Tozer wrote a book called The Pursuit of God. That really characterizes the Christian life that pursues for God that pursues godliness. So the Christian life is about taking hold of that for which Christ has take hold, taken hold of you. Paul says, take hold of the eternal life to which you've been called elsewhere. I love that passage. You've been called to eternal life? Take hold of it. So, there is one of, in closing, there is a classic paper written by a man named Thomas Chalmers, Puritan. And the paper is called 
the expulsive power of a new affection. The expulsive power of a new affection. You can get this online. If you just Google that, it'll come up on monergism.com and there's a free PDF file. How do you keep the love of God, or how do you keep the love of the world out of your hearts? Chalmers' point is you don't look at the world and avoid it. That's not necessarily how to do it. Ultimately, how to do it. Now, you do do that. Please don't misunderstand me. You should avoid things. Right? There, there are sins to avoid. But when it comes to ultimate orientation of your heart and mind, the ultimate orientation is not focusing your attention on the world and trying to avoid it, like it's trying to get you. The ultimate orientation of our heart and mind is to look at God as the object of pursuit and then run to him. Chalmers writes, there are two ways in which, practical, in which a practical moralist may attempt to displace from the human heart its love for the world, either by a demonstration of the world's vanity, so as that the heart shall be prevailed upon simply to withdraw its regard from an object that it's not worthy of, or by setting forth another object even God, as more worthy of its attachment, so that the heart shall be prevailed upon not to resign an old affection, which shall have nothing to succeed it, but to exchange an old affection for a new one. We know of no other way by which to keep the love of the world out of our heart, than to keep in our hearts the love of God. You see that? It's not just about avoiding the world and love for the world. It's about exchanging love for the world for a love of God. The object has changed in repentance. In repentance, you about face, and now you're facing God in Christ through the Holy Spirit. And you don't want the love of the world in your heart? You say, well, I still am beset with sin and I, I have desires that I shouldn't and affections I don't cherish. Well, we know of no other way by which to keep the love of the world out of our hearts than to keep in our hearts the love of God. Kingdom of God is like man who found buried treasure hidden in the field. And in his joy he went and sold all he had to buy that field. That is what the kingdom of God in the pursuit of the kingdom. Seek first the kingdom and all will be added.